I've been a, uh, a Christian for about two and a half years, uh, having uh, come to Christ late in high school, and um, started fairly quickly on my journey with Jesus uh, in the path of serving. And I uh, found myself volunteering uh, to lead on all sorts of uh, different things and be involved and contribute in all sorts of different ways, uh, and in particular on holiday camps for high school kids. Uh, being on a holiday camp uh, for kids is actually great fun. You get to give a talk, you lead a discussion group, you run games, uh, the kids think you're pretty fantastic, they lap it up, and it's all just excellent. And I thought, this Christian service thing this is easy, it's great. Until I went on a winter camp on a hill near Cooma. Now, I don't know if you know uh, what Cooma's like in winter. Uh, it is an entirely uh, God-forsaken and desolate place, I think would be the way I'd describe it. Uh, it's absolutely freezing, uh, but that's not the most interesting thing about it. Uh, this particular campsite was pretty primitive, actually. There was uh, limited water. I think there was a generator for electricity. Uh, there was no internet. Actually, there was no internet at all because it hadn't been invented then, but anyway. Uh, it was, like I said, it was really primitive. Um, and a nasty little stomach bug decided that this would be a good opportunity for an invasion. And so it went around. 26 of the 28 campers and 10 of the 12 leaders were afflicted. It created a stunning effect. This particular bug, every time food was eaten, it re-entered the world via the same route that it was consumed. The entire hill, actually, I think probably the entire hill and the surrounding valley reeked of vomit. And the deal was that those who weren't sick got to clean up the mess to try and prevent further sickness. Now, I'm of good Hungarian stock, and my stomach eats those kinds of bugs for breakfast. And what that meant was I was beautifully healthy the entire time and spent pretty much all week cleaning up other people's vomit. It was and remains the single most disgusting thing I've ever had to do, and I've had three kids. There is just something about the output of non-family members that makes it particularly difficult to cope with. Uh, I'm not going to give you the gory details, except perhaps, no, I'm not even going to tell you about cleaning off the frozen bits or actually being vomited upon. But I think that that week I learned something very, very important. Namely, never serve on high school kids' camps in winter. No, no, that's not the thing to learn. What I learned that week is that service is service. Uh, over the last uh, few Sundays, we've been digging into the ways that the Christian community is uh, designed by God to be a unique mode of relationship. It's not like any other kind of relationship that we have. And we've seen how we, uh, because we're bound together in grace, lean into hospitality as an overflow of the hospitality that God has shown us. Uh, last week we saw we are even prepared to lean into healthy conflict, not because we, we love conflict, no, not at all, but nor because we're afraid of it and so avoid it, uh, the two extremes that we see so much around us, but instead recognise that because God has overcome our conflict with him so we can actually have hope and boldness to overcome and deal with conflict with one another.
But perhaps this issue, this issue of servanthood, of, of putting yourself at the disposal of others, of putting others and their needs and their situation ahead of yourself as the regular habit and disposition of your heart, perhaps this question of service is the high point of Christian counterculture. At this point, perhaps more than any other, we are more different than the world around us. I think it'd be an understatement to say uh, that we are not naturally servants. Uh, in fact, the only way we'll ever be servants is supernaturally. And so we're going to work through uh, this question of servanthood, in particular with the, the great passage, uh, the great servant commission, if you like, of Jesus uh, in John chapter 13, under the three headings you see here, the greatness of service, the essence of service, and the diversity of service. So firstly then, the greatness of service. Uh, you, you may be uh, well aware that plumbers aren't really given the credit that they deserve. Uh, you'd know that if you'd ever lived in an era without plumbing and sewers, like, say, first century Jerusalem. Uh, when you think about it, uh, where does it all go if there's no plumbing? The only place it can go uh, is on the street, the same streets that you walk on because you don't have cars, the same streets that the animals walk on, the same unpaved streets full of dust and grime that you walk on in your sandals and in the heat. And so you get the picture of what happens to your feet over several decades of walking on those streets. Okay, this is not like your feet. Your feet are beautiful. Washing feet in that time made winter camp vomit cleanup look like a picnic in the beach. It was as disgusting as it was common. Everyone did it every day, but only ever for yourself. Very occasionally, a slave, someone who's regarded in the culture as a human tool, disposable in that way, very occasionally, a slave might wash your feet for you, but you never did it to a social equal, and you never did it to an inferior. In fact, washing people's feet was so disgusting that Jewish slaves were exempted from being required to do it. There was something that was beneath even the dignity of a Jewish slave to do. Only Gentile slaves could be required to clean the feet of their masters because, after all, they were unclean anyway, so who cared? No Jew ever washed the feet of another person, certainly no exalted rabbi washed the feet of another person. It was the single most servile and disgusting thing that one person could do for another. Have I painted the picture? And that is exactly what Jesus does. Uh, the narrative slows right down, doesn't it? Um, the, the description of the taking of the towel and the wrapping around it himself and the getting of the bowl and the getting of the... And the, the, it's there to really make you appreciate the detail. Uh, but there's something even bigger than the detail of the act that's going on in this text. And because perhaps the biggest challenge of the passage uh, is how it introduces it. You see, it's categorically not that Jesus 
washes the disciples' feet despite his glory. It's categorically not that Jesus washes the disciples' feet despite his majesty. In fact, it's so interesting in the passage, it's, it's hammered again and again. It's not that Jesus washes the disciples' feet despite the knowledge of the fact that God had given all things into his hands. That, that he is the supreme Lord of everything because God, the creator, had given it all to him. It's not despite that. It's not despite the fact that he'd come from God and was going to God. That his origin and his destiny were the glory of heaven. Now, it's not despite those things. The text is, is appallingly clear. It was the perfect expression of those things. It's in the overflow of those things that he washes the disciples' feet. And so here's the point. You see, what the passage is working very hard to get into our heads and into our hearts is in the most confronting way possible is this. It's that real glory, real power, real excellence, real substance, real greatness is constituted by humble, meek, rights-sacrificing, status-shedding, personal dignity-crushing service, like washing other people's feet. There is no excellence of character, there is no powerful or impressiveness of person, there is none of that in anyone who is not also a servant. And the truth is that if you don't know the servantness of a person's heart, you don't yet know the most important thing about them. And it makes little sense, therefore, to be impressed by them. And I say that because I think we find it so very easy to be impressed with just about anything else. Naked power, financial success, tremendous gifts and skills, a sunny personality. But although those things have their uses, they don't get to the heart of the issue. They don't get to the heart of what greatness is, substance is, which is a heart for service. Jesus says that is true greatness. Which leads to the second point, the essence of service. Uh, it's, a, it's a very rich passage that uh, we're looking at, uh, and Jesus is very clear that he's doing two things at the same time. That's what makes it a little bit kind of complicated. Um, we're not going to focus on the first of the things, uh, but rather the second. The first thing, though, is uh, also very important. It, it, what he's doing is explaining the immediate future for the disciples. He's preparing them for what's going to happen tomorrow, actually. Uh, namely, the crisis of his death, which he's perfectly aware of and committed to, uh, not as a catastrophe, but as a necessity. And Jesus describes it in a very particular way. He says, it's the cleansing of them. That's what's taking place. That, that what he's doing in his death is that necessary act of cleansing us. We'll come back to that in just a moment. 
But notice that then there's a second part that Jesus immediately goes on to make clear that not only is he cleansing us, he's also setting an example for us, verse 15. Uh, the word here is literally about setting out a pattern. Uh, it's a bit like the way kids learn to write. I don't know if this is still the case. This is how, kids, this is how I learned to write anyway, and it was good enough for me. Um, uh, you, may, you may remember the books uh, where faint grey lines are on a page in the form of letters. Remember these books? And what you do is uh, you trace over those lines. A, you know, curse B, and so on. You trace over those faint grey lines, those patterns, gradually learning to do naturally and easily what starts out as awkward and difficult. So the idea is that you, just, you learn you know, by rote how to do this pattern. You, you see the pattern and you copy it in such a way that it becomes scored into your movements, unless, of course, you're a doctor, in which case illegibility is crucial. Um, that's what... I, I shouldn't say that, should I? That's nasty. That's what Jesus is doing for us here. That's what Jesus is doing for us here. He is demonstrating a pattern. He's... he's laying down the grey line on the page of life for us, demonstrating the way that life is lived for God, and he wants, he says, us to trace over his pattern. Time and time and time and time again, until it's scored into our souls and that what starts out as awkward and difficult and weird, just over a lifetime of growing becomes normal, habitual, standard. This takes us to the question of the essence of service. You see, it's an interesting thing. Uh, the passage starts by talking about love. Did you notice that the, the beginning of the passage is that Jesus loved his disciples and now he loves them to the end. But it finishes by talking about service. I've served you and I've done this as an example for you. It's an example that you should walk in. And it, it raises the question, right? What, what exactly is this an example of? Is this an example of love or is this an example of service? And of course, as soon as you put the question like that, you know what the answer is? The answer is yes. It's both. That's the point. Jesus is demonstrating that the essence of service is love and the essence of love is service. And so let me uh, slow this down uh, a little bit uh, and, uh, and tease it out for us. The fact that serving is about love and love is about serving means that love is more than mere tolerance. Uh, lots of people define love as just uh, accepting people as they are, uh, as not passing judgment on someone, uh, as not uh, kind of standing in uh, disapproval over what other people do or are. And of course, that's, that's not a bad place to start. Love as tolerance but it's a lousy place to end. And you can see why, can't you? Because 
love as tolerance like that can only ever make for a loose, disengaged kind of community. Its whole raison d'etre is just letting people be. But what Jesus demonstrates here is that love is active, not standing back. Love is serving. Love is washing feet, actually. Love is genuine engagement, not just saying, you're fine, everything's fine, we're fine. You just be you and I'll just be me and that will just sort of go along parallel. No, no, serving love is much messier, much grittier, much more engaged than that. It has a vision of another person, of what they could be, of what their cleanliness might be, if you like, if you got all that dirt and infection off. Love means getting involved so much more than mere tolerance. Uh, Author Rebecca Pippet put it this way, describing how the more that she loves somebody, the angrier she gets at them when they're doing something to hurt themselves. Listen to how she puts it. If I see somebody hurting themselves and I don't love them that much and I don't know them that much, I'm tolerant. The less I love somebody, the more tolerant I am if I see them doing things that seem to be hurting themselves. But the more I love somebody, the less tolerant I am. I want to shake them, she said. I don't know know her, actually. Uh, We don't need to go all the way with the violence bit. Um, I want to shake them. Can't you see? Don't you know what you're doing to yourself? You're becoming less and less yourself. I'm not angry because I hate them. I'm angry because I love them. If I hadn't loved them, I would be disinterested. And she explains, real love stands against deception. Real love stands against lies that destroy. The more a parent loves a child, the more they hate in that child, the drunk, the liar, the traitor. Anger, she concludes, is not the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. Now, this is a very uh, kind of delicate, finely balanced issue, isn't it? Uh, the, The question of tolerance and of not sort of Endlessly interfering in other people's lives, that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, the way that that can so easily also just spill into a disengaged uh, disinterest. You're you, I'm me, and that's all there is to it. No, love, according to Jesus at least, gets involved. It serves. It rolls up its sleeves and gets messy. And to the extent that another person will welcome it, this kind of loving service says, let me help you become everything that you're designed to be. Uh, Similarly, uh, this kind of serving love uh, is more than mere romance. Now again, don't don't, don't overhear this. Uh, It's not that love can't include romance, but mere romance will always sell serving love short. Uh, by, here, by romance here, I don't just mean uh, kind of uh, classic boy-girl uh, romance, um, uh, love, uh, but rather I love as attraction in a broader sense. I love you because I'm attracted to you. 
And that can be a physical or sexual attraction, but it can be all sorts of other kinds of romance-based attraction love as well. Uh, it's perfectly possible to be attracted to another person's success, uh, to another person's power, to another person's mind and how sharp they are. Romantic love in this broad sense is being attracted to people because they're attractive. And for many, that's what love is. But for Jesus, love is a serving love, a foot-washing kind of love. And the whole point is that the feet, and you may feel this somewhat, the feet are the least attractive part of the body. Attraction love is really a hunger, actually. A hunger that runs along these lines. I'm attracted to you because you're attractive and what that means is when we're connected, you make me feel better about myself. After all, you're an attractive person. You fill me up. You make me feel significant. I want to have you so that you can help me become more myself. Uh, Think about it. If you go to a, a beautiful fruit tree and you're absolutely full then what you might do for the fruit trees, you might tend it, you might prune it, you might cut the dead bits off, all of that kind of stuff. What you're doing is appreciating the fruit tree for what it is in itself. But if you come to a beautiful fruit tree and you're starving hungry, what do you do? You're attracted to the fruit tree, yes, but it's in a completely different way. You just strip it. You don't love it for its own sake. You love it as a commodity for what it can do for you. And Jesus demonstrates that love is washing feet. It comes from out of a fullness of our hearts and our life in him. This is where the two parts of the incident work together, you see. It's because he himself has washed us. He's made us clean He's served people regardless of our attractiveness to him. And knowing that you're clean enables you then to get dirty and messy with other people. You see how that goes? It's not just attractive people that you're engaged with then. It's not because they're attractive people that you're engaged with them then. The language of this kind of serving love is not what you can do for me, but what I can do for you. So what will that mean in concrete terms? Uh, Thirdly, the diversities of this kind of service. Uh, The fact is, uh, for each of us, that servanthood will take many, many different forms. I I suspect uh, that uh, one of our challenges here is to make sure that we apply sufficient imagination Uh, to the ways in which we take up and adopt the position of the servant. Uh, On the one hand, there's what you might call personal service. Uh, Much of the way that we will serve like Jesus served in the washing of feet uh, will simply be in the way that we conduct ourselves in our workplaces, in our homes, in our cars, say at roundabouts, um, with our family, uh, with our friends. This is the ordinary business of serving God where he's placed us. And mostly it has to do with the small things, the way we use words to build up rather than to put down. The small kindnesses, the extra mile, actually taking the time and energy to think your way into another person's situation 
and figure out what they might uh, need right now. Uh, Sometimes it will be uh, deliberate. Uh, A friend of mine uh, had a mate who was a gambling addict. Uh, He would collect his income for him with all the kind of inherent dangers that that kind of financial enmeshment with another person brings and arrange to see him every couple of days to give him a bit little by little so that his mate didn't waste it on a poker machine. That's servanthood. You just get involved. It's messy and it takes time. Uh, Frankly, a great deal of this kind of servanthood is simply turning up and asking yourself the simple question as you do, how can I be a blessing in this situation? it's very, I, find that, I found that a revolutionary question in my life, actually. Uh, that as I enter a room, as I move into a new context, instead of asking who's respecting me here, who's looking to me, what, what, what is it, what is my job, I, to just ask myself, how can I serve in such a way as to be a blessing right now? Uh, it was Woody Allen who said that 90% of life is turning up, uh, and there's a lot of wisdom in that. And whether that's on a Sunday here at church or in a fellowship group or at an outreach event, a community that turns up with an attitude of servanthood is going to be a rich community. But at the same time, there's what you might call institutional service. Uh, from time to time in our lives, and I think this has seasons, it comes and goes, uh, you have enough spare time and space left over so you make decisions to serve above and beyond your immediate context. Uh, either in a community organisation out there, coaching cricket or soccer or whatever it might be, serving on a school board or something, or here at church. In our own life, as an institution, if you like, uh, at church, we structure service in three ways. We have our serving on Sundays, uh, all the sort of rosters that are needed. The whole idea of the rosters uh, is that on the whole, there's no real reason not to be involved in them. They're pretty easy. They're done, done take a, it's, it's just, it's... It's sort of, you know, book one of tracing out the lines, the, the letters. It's pretty nice, big letters, right? Um, second is our practical care ministry, which enables us to do simple acts of practical care whereby we help people when we're available because we're just at that awkward size where we don't know immediately the practical care needs that we all have and so we need something of a system to make it work. And third, there are ministry teams which have a specific focus for service, like an event, say our Christmas festival coming up, or an ongoing program like our children's ministries or fellowship groups. And part of the challenge of uh, this example that Jesus sets for us uh, is for each one of us to consider to what degree have we traced that pattern into our lives, scored it into our souls, both in our personal stance of service and also in the ways in which we have taken up opportunities institutionally to serve. All right, let's conclude. The two parts of this incident belong together, I've said that a couple of times, that it's only knowing that you're washed, that you are clean. And that in Christ you stay washed, 
that you will find it in you to get dirty in the business of serving other people. The, the truth is, to change the metaphor, that we are hungry. We, we are hungry people. We very much want to be filled. We need to find people who will make us feel good about ourselves. And the only way that we won't seek that in others and so spoil our serving love and turn it into a commodity is to seek it in Jesus. Jesus comes to us and says, I see that you're hungry. I know your hearts. It's difficult for you to put yourself in other people's places, to love your neighbour as yourself, to put on the apron and start washing. And so I've come and put myself into your place and put on the apron. I've lived the life that you should have lived and I've died the death that you should have died and I've taken the place of abject servility. Kneeling at your feet. Loving you by serving you. I've put myself in your place, Jesus says, so that you can start to put yourself in my place, the place of a servant. Hear the power and truth of this. Jesus got nothing out of his love and service of you. It's so interesting, isn't it, in the passage? He, he had everything. He'd received all things from the Father. He'd come from the Father. He was returning to the Father. He had the glory of heaven. He got nothing out of this love and service of us, which means wonderfully that he loves and serves us precisely for our sake. Not for his sake. He didn't need anything. He did it cleanly, you see, from fullness. There's nothing mixed about this kind of service. And when you are filled with that sort of love, freed from hunger love, then more and more you'll be able to freely love as Jesus has loved us, to freely serve as Jesus has served us. And that's pretty great because this issue of service lies right at the heart of three crucial needs that we have. See, on the one hand, there is nothing as excellent in life as knowing that you are an agent of the blessing of God in the lives of other people. There's nothing as rich as a life lived with purpose and clarity and mission. And the greatest mission of all is to know that your words and actions and prayers magnify and intensify the glory of God and the building of his kingdom and his people. It's a life well lived, but at the same time, the church is never more truly the church than when it lives out the reality that it's a body with the Lord Jesus Christ as its head. And every member tracing out this pattern of Jesus Christ, scoring it onto their souls and serving one another. It's interesting that the New Testament is just almost obsessed with one anotherness. 52, I think it is, times. Build one another up, teach one another, share with one another, weep with one another, laugh with one another, and we'll look at it next week. Encourage one another. There's, it, this is the opposite of just tolerance. Deep, messy engagement with one another. And it's all about this service attitude. 
So it's a life well lived, it's a community that's knit together and thirdly there's nothing more that the world needs and the inner west in particular needs than Christian communities that operate at their full redemptive potential. That they see and hear and are touched by a community that's so full of grace and truth in Jesus Christ that it overflows in loving service with that grace and truth to the streets and the households and the schools and the lonely and the sick and the homeless. To actually experience a spirit of service in the name of a gracious serving Lord because our environment is so obsessed with consumption and commodity and utility. Brothers and sisters, if we can grow more and more into God's fully devoted children like this, in this aspect of adopting the stance of a servant with the apron on and the knees bent, then we'll go a long way toward experiencing the joy that Jesus promises us in our lives. It'll be a life well lived toward being the kind of church that Jesus longs for us to be knit together and to make the kind of impact in our area that Jesus calls us to make. Amen.